For all you elk hunters out there, chasing turkeys is basically the same thing. I know the reaction you just gave me, but don't knock it till you try it and don't try it without OnX. The Hunt app will not only help you find new areas on public ground, but I use it to find out landowner info to get permission on private ground that I see birds on as well. OnX Hunt has a special offer for you. Use code CAL to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt and find more birds this spring. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. That's seafoamworks.com to learn more. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. From Mediator's World News Headquarters in Bozeman, Montana, this is Cal's Week in Review, presented by Steel. Steel products are available only at authorized dealers. For more, go to steeldealers.com. Now, here's your host, Ryan Cal Callahan. A giant 260,000-gallon aquarium exploded in Berlin last month, dumping about 1,500 fish into the lobby of the Radisson Blue Hotel. You Coen Brothers Fargo fans are probably thinking, oh, not the Radisson. You darn tootin'. Prior to its untimely demise, the aquarium, known as the Aquadom, had been the largest freestanding cylindrical aquarium in the world. Miraculously, no one died as a result of the disaster. The burst occurred in the early morning hours when there was minimal foot traffic and only two people were injured in falling glass. The fish weren't quite so lucky. In what must have been the strangest rescue effort in history, the Berlin Fire Brigade was called to scoop up as many fish as they could. The vast majority of the fish had died and the cold weather didn't help. The aquarium had contained about 100 different species of tropical fish, which aren't known for their hardiness in the cold weather. One bystander described finding a dead, frozen parrotfish that had washed through the hotel lobby and into the street. Investigators are still trying to work out what caused the massive glass structure to burst, but one German engineer told the newspaper The Guardian that he believed the aquarium was, quote, a ticking time bomb. He claimed that those kinds of structures have an expiration date and that some only last about 25 years. Although the Aquadom was drained and refurbished as recently as 2020, it burst a short 19 years after it was constructed. So, you know, if you're currently in the middle of that big dream remodel, and it included a cylindrical Aquadom-type structure, I may rethink that. Several of you sent me this story after I mentioned visiting the uh, Atlanta Aquarium in episode 189. 
and I wondered what might happen if those tanks burst and released their combined 6 million gallons of water. Um, well, the Aquadom cracked just five days after that episode aired, which you gotta admit is a coincidence. Makes me wonder if I can make anything else happen by talking about it on this podcast. If you have any ideas, shoot me an email, ASKCAL at TheMeatEater.com. This week, we've got legislation, wildlife crime, and the only problem with relocation. But first, I'm going to tell you about my week. In my week, you know, it's been a while. We've been pre-recording podcasts for this whole uh, holiday Christmas break. So, up-to-date news would be uh, training, right? Snort report. (laughs) Most importantly, we have been back in the saddle getting some good old-fashioned retriever training in. We hit our maximum for the allowable federal limit of ducks one person can have in their freezer. And I plan on hunting ducks for a couple more days this year. So I'm searing, grilling, and even frying ducks at a fevered pace. Feel like my face and mustache have a glow, a youthful sheen of duck fat. And being as duck is the most fatty animal I put in my freezer, it is a real treat to have amongst the arsenal of lean meats. And it's very tricky to end with a perfect 21. It's like waterfowl blackjack. I want to end the season with 21 ducks so then I can stretch those 21 ducks out throughout the non-waterfowl gathering part of my year. Have that big fatty mallard in the freezer for when I really want it. So the question becomes, how many do I eat right now, betting that I will actually be able to replenish the stock on my next couple of waterfowl hunts? That's the big question. What if the ducks don't fly? Meat hoarding is a real thing, kids. Really is. So far this week, I have eaten two mallard ducks, a pintail, a widgeon, and a gadwall, which is, you know, seven nights of eating and could be replenished within like an hour of shooting. One day, duck hunting. Eh, Fortunately, I've got broad shoulders. Anyway, this self-imposed and federally enforced shooting break has gotten Snort and I back into the field to throw the bumpers around and work on our whistle and hand commands reinforce the rhythm of coming to heal, hand, and release. Things get sloppy in the field. In the actual hunting scenarios, because hunting is not practice, we're not going to go to the same spot every single day, be in the exact same position. The wind changes, the birds changes, the permissions change, the hunting pressure changes. You got to be mobile. Oftentimes we're building our own blinds that look and function very differently if they function at all from the last one that we built which all means that this routine that dogs are very accustomed to gets broken up over and over again. So when I'm training the dog, I try to go to a lot of different spots, keep that versatile as well, because at the end of the day, the only routine that matters is the one that's based off of just the communication between you and the dog, right? Because all the other variables can change. For instance, I really prefer to have my dogs heal on the right-hand side for the reason that when I'm shooting, I believe a right-handed shooter, which I am, keeps the barrel of the gun a heck of a lot further away from the dog's head if they're healed on the right versus if they're healed on the left. You have more of a propensity to swing that barrel over the dog's head if they're healed on the left in my shooting experience. I know a lot of trainers like to have those dogs on the left-hand side, which is great. I mean, snort heels on the left too but I prefer on the right, right? But we get this invite. Old Steven Rinella calls me up. He's got an invite. 
gets to add me in there, specifically the dog. We show up, and guess what? The only good spot to work the dog from is the left-hand side. And it's a pit blind. So Snort did great healing on the left, but this was not normal routine. Just an example of simple disruption of the routine, right? Snort retrieved four limits of mallards that day. She did great on the retrieves, but really did not want to get me the bird to hand while I was in the pit blind, right? It's not something that we've practiced, her being on the ground and me looking up at her from a pit, which is exactly why we're kind of back in the field working on these things. It's never ending. Fortunately, it's super fun. And that's the snort report. I hope your season's going well. We've got precious few days of waterfowl season left, kids. Got to get some honkers in the bag to boot. Anyway. We are moving heavily into the politics zone. Multiple states are in legislative session, which means we have a lot of bill reading and a lot of writing in and calling in to do as responsible hunters, anglers, and conservationists. We're going to try to cover all of this news in a very distinct fashion. Give you just the facts, okay? And then I'm going to break apart and say, like, this is what my opinion may be on something like this. Okay? Deal? Try our best here. Got a heavy couple of weeks. Anyway, moving on to the CWD desk. Straight out of Washington, D.C., the omnibus spending package has passed. U.S. Congress recently passed the Chronic Wasting Disease Research and Management Act, which was part of that omnibus bill. The CWD Act sets aside $70 million every year from now until 2028 to help states fight the spread of the deadly ungulate disease. Congress passed and President Biden signed this bill, thanks in large part to the effort of folks like you who called in, wrote emails. You did great. Well done. We issued a call to action here on the Meat Eater website, and you made your voices heard. Big thanks to everyone who called in or wrote their U.S. congressperson. This funding can't come soon enough. States have honed their ability to limit the spread of CWD, but it's spreading nonetheless. Louisiana, for example, just confirmed their second case of CWD. This one from a hunter-harvested buck taken on private land in Tensa Parish. The first case was discovered in the same parish last year, and officials believe the disease is spread from a nearby county in Mississippi. The Louisiana Department of Wildlife and Fisheries has adopted hunting regulations in Tensa Parish, which they hope will slow the spread. Tennessee is also considering how best to keep CWD from spreading to new areas. The state recently issued a revised five-year CWD response and management plan, which will serve as a guiding document for policymakers and ensure the best science is applied to efforts to control the disease. The agency wants to prevent the spread of CWD by improving early detection, which means continuing to ramp up their testing efforts. They also want to increase research funding and continue to bolster their outreach and communications efforts to make sure hunters know how to comply with the regulations. If you'd like to take a look at the new plan yourself, visit themeateater.com forward slash cal and follow the link underneath this episode. The Tennessee Wildlife Resource Agency is also accepting public comments until January 29th, 2023. You can submit a comment by sending an email to twra.huntingcomments at tn.gov. Whatever Tennessee's new CWD plan ends up looking like, you can be sure of one thing. It'll cost a pretty penny. It's expensive to harvest and test deer, fund research, and pay for outreach efforts. That's why the CWD bill that Congress passed is such a big deal. 
It'll give states like Tennessee some much-needed cash to increase testing and hopefully slow the spread of the disease. Unfortunately, the omnibus bill does not include everything we hoped it would. Despite a huge surge of support leading up to the vote, lawmakers decided not to include the Recovering America's Wildlife Act, or RAWA, alongside the CWD bill. America's Outdoor Recreation Act was also not included, which we were hoping to pass during this Congress. It's unfortunate that Congress decided against funding for threatened and endangered species, but there's still a good chance RAWA gets passed during this session. It enjoys bipartisan support in the House and the Senate, and it passed the House last year. While some Republican senators worry about funding the $1.3 billion annual price tag, the RAWA framework provides funding for states to help species before they wind up on the endangered species list. Listing a species on the ESL is incredibly expensive, both for the taxpayer and for farmers and ranchers. Funding efforts to save species before they reach critically low levels will save money in the long run. Not to mention, keep people happy. The pace of conservation is something to keep in mind here. When we say bipartisan, right, a lot of the framework for Recovering America's Wildlife Act started under the Trump administration, okay? Republican. Now we're under a Democratic administration. Democrat. It takes both sides to work this stuff. These are big bills, takes a lot of effort from all sides, and conservation moves painfully slow. So focus on the conservation part. Don't focus on the politics part. Moving on to the carnivore desk. The Wyoming Wildlife Federation is hoping to pass a series of bills this year that would clean up the state statutes related to large carnivore hunting. The anti-hunting lobby has taken aim at large carnivore hunting. Whether it's bear hunting in Washington or cougar hunting in Colorado, banning the hunting of these charismatic megafauna is considered low-hanging fruit for animal rights groups. Their ultimate aim is to ban all hunting for any species but they realize that it's easier, for whatever reason, to gain public sympathy for big fuzzy carnivores than for deer or elk. Some of this opposition is inevitable. There's nothing we can do. But some of it is self-inflicted. Most people support hunting for food, but oppose, quote, trophy hunting. I could record an entire podcast on the nuances of that term. I think it's a load of malarkey. But I think it's fair to say that most people consider trophy hunters as those in some kind of old-timey story who take the head and hide and leave the meat to rot. I think the percentage of those folks that exist these days uh, are largely poachers, and hunters don't like associating with them either. So anyway, the average Joe, who's never tasted a bear steak, believes that large carnivore hunters are trophy hunters. And we in the outdoor community haven't done a great job educating the public otherwise. That's what these Wyoming bills are all about. The Wyoming Wildlife Federation is seeking passage for two independent pieces of legislation in the 2023 general session. The first piece of legislation would remove, quote, trophy game animal as the language used for bears, lions, and wolves within state statutes and replace it with, quote, large carnivore. This will underscore the fact that the vast, vast majority of bear hunters aren't in it just for the rug and paws. They eat the meat, they use the fat, and generally try to utilize the entire animal. To give some teeth to this new language, the Wyoming Wildlife Federation also wants to require bears, lions, and wolves to be subject to Wyoming standard wanton waste laws. These laws require hunters to harvest all edible portions from big game animals, which is generally considered the four quarters, loins, and tenderloins. 
right now, large carnivore hunters are exempt from this requirement. Keep in mind, check your state regulations, right? This is Wyoming that we're talking about. Many hunters harvest the meat anyway, but codifying this practice in law would undercut the argument that large carnivore hunting is just about the, quote, trophy. The Wyoming Wildlife Federation believes the state legislature will be receptive to these bills. Removing grizzly bears from the endangered species list is a priority for many lawmakers, and these statutory changes will help them make the arguments that states have the ability to manage their large carnivore populations. If you need more reason to support these bills, check out the list of organizations backing them. TRCP, that's the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership, Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, the Congressional Sportsman's Foundation, and a host of other hunter and conservation organizations have voiced their support as well. If you'd like to join them, get in touch with your Wyoming state legislators and tell them you support changing trophy game animals to large carnivores and adding these large carnivores to the wanton waste prohibition. This is a subtle change. I get it. But it's an important one. Basically, right now, the way the regulations are written, we just give ammunition to the anti-hunting crowd. And when you consider that most hunters are taking the meat off their carnivores anyway, let's just change the regulations. Makes sense to me. Which of you listening right now took a class in school about family finances 101? No one? Me neither. Like the importance of a will or a college savings plan or even life insurance or estate planning, we have to know these things. But how do we figure it all out? That's why I'm excited to partner with Fabric by Gerber Life. Life insurance is important to me because I don't want to be a burden on anyone ever, especially when I'm dead and I can't chip in to, you know, lift heavy things and do stuff like that. That's why I have life insurance. And I know you don't want to be a pain in the ass because you're listening to my podcast. So get life insurance. Fabric by Gerber Life is term life insurance you can get done right here, right now. You could be covered from your couch in under 10 minutes with no health exam required. If you've got kids, and especially if you're young and healthy, the time to lock in low rates is now. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meatfabric.com slash cal. That's meatfabric.com slash cal. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash cal policies issued by western southern life assurance company not available in certain states prices subject to underwriting and health questions for all you elk hunters out there chasing turkeys is basically the same thing i know the reaction you just gave me but don't knock it till you try it and don't try it without on x the hunt app will not only help you find new areas on public ground but i use it to find out landowner info to get permission on private ground that I see birds on as well. Onyx Hunt has a special offer for you. Use code CAL to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com hunt and find more birds this spring. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time. Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. It's really simple. When you pour it in your gas tank, seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can in your gas tank and let it clean your fuel system. You probably know someone who has used a can of seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. I guarantee you've listened to them because I use it 
you know, regularly. People everywhere rely on seafoam to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. Help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Moving on to the fishing desk. A big fight is coming to a head in Michigan between recreational anglers, the state of Michigan, the federal government, and local Native American tribes. The Great Lakes Consent Decree is a document that governs fishing regulations in certain portions of Lake Michigan, Huron, and Superior. It was originally signed in 1985, after tribal commercial fishermen nearly wiped out the lake trout population in the mid-20th century. The various parties agreed to the Great Lakes Consent Decree to help rehabilitate the lake trout population, and it was updated again in the year 2000. It's been largely successful. Lake trout have been rehabilitated, and the agreement maintained a roughly 50-50 balance between harvesting opportunities for tribes and state-licensed sport anglers. Unfortunately, that 2000 consent decree expired in 2020. A judge extended the deadline by two years, and just last month, the state of Michigan, the federal government, and native tribes submitted an updated version to a judge. Recreational anglers were shocked to learn that this new consent decree allows tribal commercial fishermen to use millions more feet of gill net in the Great Lakes every year, and to use gill netting in places it is currently prohibited. For example, Gill netting will now be allowed in the Upper Peninsula's Bay de Noc, as well as in the Northern Lake Huron Lake Trout Refuge. In Bay de Noc, tribes will now be allowed to use 24,000 feet of large mesh gill net per day. Gill netting is an effective way to catch fish, and the consent decree requires the nets to be set at a certain depth and includes a 15-pound bag limit for walleye. But recreational fishing groups point out that gill nets are indiscriminate meaning that fishermen can't guarantee that only the target species will be killed. They also note that the widespread use of gill netting is what caused a decline in the lake trout population by as much as 98%. Amy Trotter, the executive director for the Michigan United Conservation Club, said the proposed decree, quote, stands in stark contrast to decrees of the past, which focused on a collaborative approach, biology above all else, minimization of conflict, and most importantly, an equally shared resource. She argued that when recreational anglers can't find as many fish or they run into gill netting, there will be conflicts that could have been avoided. For their part, the tribes in the state of Michigan argue that this new consent decree is consistent with what's already in place and won't threaten fish populations. David Carafino, an official at the Michigan Department of Natural Resources, said, quote, We believe this agreement has clear benefits for all the parties. The new consent decree has been submitted to a federal judge for approval. He asked all parties to file comments and objections by January 20, and then there will be another 45 days for reply. This isn't something on which the public can comment, but you can throw a few bucks in the hat for the Michigan United Conservation Clubs. These clubs are lobbying to fight these battles on your behalf. I'm sure they'd appreciate it. Moving on to the crime desk. Speaking of Michigan... Two men in the Minton State have been charged with felonies for their alleged role in killing a hunter in 2018. Prosecutors say 34-year-old Thomas Olson and 34-year-old Robert Rodway killed a 68-year-old man named Chong Yang while Yang was hunting in Rose Lake State Park. Yang's family found his body after his wife became worried when he didn't return home. They found Yang's car in the parking lot and two sets of footprints led to where he lay on the ground with a gunshot wound to the head. It's unclear at this point what motivated the attack. 
Chang's headlamp, knife, backpack, and shotgun had been stolen, and the family's attorney says Chang did not know the two men. Prosecutors say witness testimony, a plastic bag, and hunting spray found near Yang's body led police to Olson and Rodway. Both men are facing one count of felony murder and one count of felony firearm possession. If convicted of murder, they could be sentenced to life in prison. A 77-year-old woman in the Florida Keys is being charged with illegally killing an endangered species after she shot and killed a key deer. However, according to local media, residents say it was a mercy killing. The buck deer was supposedly emaciated, losing its hair, and having trouble breathing. A nonprofit called Save Our Key Deer posted photos of the buck in question, and it does appear to be suffering from some kind of mange or road rash or, you know, who knows what else you can pick up on a beach in South Florida. Local residents told reporters that it had been tangled up in rope, and they thought it could have been dragged. The woman contacted Florida wildlife agencies, but after not hearing back for two and a half hours, she took matters into her own hands. It's unclear exactly how she dispatched the deer, but officials say it was killed with a gun on a residential lot. Key deer are dog-sized subspecies of white-tailed deer that live only in the Florida Keys, a string of small islands on the state's southern coast. The current population is between 700 and 800 individuals, and so they are listed as endangered both on the federal and state levels. Killing one, even if it appears to be suffering, is a misdemeanor punishable by up to one year in prison and a $100,000 fine. I doubt any judge is going to throw the book at this woman, and I understand her desire to end the deer's suffering, but trained biologists should be making these decisions, especially when the animal in question is an endangered species. Another reason to keep them off the list in the first place. In one of the largest poaching cases in Wyoming's history, three out-of-state men were charged with more than 100 violations. Unlike other big poaching busts we've covered on this podcast, these yahoos weren't involved in wildlife trafficking or selling their trophies for profit. A game warden told the Cowboy State Daily that these guys were in it for the ego. They just wanted to collect as many trophy animals as they could. Russell Vick of Alabama, Robert Underwood of Oklahoma, and David Underwood of South Dakota were convicted and face over $300,000 in fines, combined years in jail, and lifetime hunting bans. Most of their violations were related to hunting without licenses and during closed seasons. Vick, for example, poached three sheep, two elk, 11 deer, four antelope, four moose, and at least a few birds. Friends and neighbors, if you've ever applied for anything in the state of Wyoming, you know how daunting the odds are. This is one of the reasons. Guy's out there stealing our wildlife. He was also an accessory to poaching two other sheep, three elk, one deer, one antelope, two turkeys, and one bobcat, mostly while helping his buddies hunt out of season and without a license. Vic has been illegally killing wildlife at least since the early 2000s, but he first appeared on law enforcement radar in 2015 when a Wyoming game warden received a request for an interstate game tag. The tag was to send a deer head to Vic in Alabama, but the warden noticed that Vic had purchased resident hunting licenses in Wyoming. That didn't end up, and the subsequent years-long investigation resulted in a search of Vic's Alabama residence and a truckload of incriminating evidence The rest, as they say, is history, and so are the hunting careers of these three poachers. Just fair warning, because it's something that happens every single year. When it comes to hunting, you can only be a resident in one state. That's a universal law. Moving on to the bear desk. Remember that old movie, Homeward Bound? 
It's the one about three lovable family pets who get lost and have to find their way back to their owners. Hollywood has made a few different versions of this over the years, and nature provided the very next one. How about we replace the dogs and cats with a black bear, and instead of finding her way back to her human owners, she finds her way back to a particularly tasty campsite. That might not be quite as heartwarming, but it is realistic. That's because researchers in Tennessee recently tracked a black bear that covered over a thousand miles to return to its home in Great Smoky Mountains National Park. The bothersome Bruin had been eating food off picnic tables, stealing backpacks, and poking around trash cans. That's a recipe for disaster, so park officials decided to ship the bear to the north to the South Cherokee National Forest. They fitted the bear with a GPS collar, and they watched in disbelief as the bear wandered through Georgia, South Carolina, and North Carolina before returning to Tennessee. She crossed Interstate 40 and wound up in the exact same campsite where she was originally captured. But this bear was too smart to hang around where she'd already been nabbed. She continued trucking until she wound up back in Georgia, where local media outlets in a town just north of Hotlanta reported that she'd been sighted wandering around a shopping center. At some point, she got hit by a car, but biologists believe she survived. They haven't received a GPS signal from her in several weeks, but they think she's still alive. They collared this bear as part of a larger study on what happens to bears that get relocated. When a bear becomes a problem, biologists can either euthanize the bear or move it. Moving bears seems like the better option, and it often is, which is a relatively new perception. Used to think that the relocation efforts didn't work well at all. Now we have more data on that, and we know that actually a large portion of relocations are successful, which is cool. But the public doesn't realize that not all bears are as hardy as this Georgia black bear. I said Tennessee, Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina black bear. That study has found that about two-thirds of the bears that are relocated die within four months. They're in unfamiliar territory that belongs to other bears, and they can't always acclimate to the new environment, even if the habitat is similar. That's all I've got for you this week. Thank you so much for listening. As per usual, write in. Let me know how I'm doing. And tell me what's going on in your neck of the woods at A-S-K-C-A-L. That's askcal at themeateater.com. And if you're looking to hole up inside and knock out some home projects, go to www.steeldealers.com and pick up a clean, quiet, battery-operated chainsaw. I use mine inside all the time. Neighbors have no idea. I promise. They're going to hook you up with the dealer near you. They're going to get you set up with what you need and not try to send you home with what you don't. Thanks again, and I'll talk to you next week. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel, gum, and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. That's seafoamworks.com to learn more. Hey, I just sat down with the owners and operators of Maui Nui Venison. They're on a mission to balance access deer populations on Maui while giving back to the community and run a totally sustainable operation. For folks like me who want to get your own meat but aren't always successful, you can become a snack subscriber, get some Axis Deer sticks, 
sent right to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I, Venison.com. And use promo code CAL for 20% off your first order.